We get to have the Bible reading now. We're reading from 1 John uh, chapter 1, the not 1 John, sorry, John chapter 1, verses 15 to 34, and it should be on the screen behind me. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God, the one and only Son, who himself is God, and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptising. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Good morning, everyone. My name's Roscoe, if anybody hasn't met me. Uh, We're on a journey. We've just started last week through the book of the Gospel of John. Uh, John is explaining why he believes in Jesus Christ. And these first four chapters, we're going to be looking over the first term, is John's just laying out the evidence. The Apostle John, who's writing this, laying out the evidence. This is why I believe in Jesus. So we're just taking it bit by bit. This morning we're looking at the testimony of John the Baptist. Just bit by bit we're going to say, why do these people believe? And why should we believe? What are they seeing that maybe we're not seeing? So how about I pray and then we'll uh, dig a bit deeper into this story. Dear Father God, we just thank you that when we come and draw near to you, that you, you never push us away, but you draw near to us. When we have seeking hearts and open ears, you speak into our lives. So Lord, send us your spirit now. Help us to understand what's going on in this passage and understand what it means for us living some 2,000 years later. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
If I ask you how your week is going, how would that look, as, particularly as a snapshot? As a snapshot of your life, if you had to put one photo on Facebook about how your week has been going, what would it look like? See, I actually don't like people who put photos like this up, say, this is what my week is like, I'm sitting by the beach. Uh, I actually put this photo up a couple of weeks ago and I apologise to everybody. It's not a very nice thing to do. But when you're feeling good, you're happy to go, this is what my week is like, oh, I'm cruising, this is good. But if you ask me this week, my week's a little bit more like this. You know, I'm going from one meeting to the next, it's on the go, my week's gone so quickly, time has just disappeared. That's a sort of picture of my week. But how's your week going? Maybe that school's back now, you'd have a photo of your kids all in school uniforms. Or maybe it's this pile of school uniforms need to be washed and ironed already. Maybe it's the lunch boxes. You know, it's all about getting back into the school routine. Maybe it's just like a photo of you that's just, you know, you can stretch the photos. Like, I'm just stretched in all directions and I'm distorted. I don't feel my normal self because I'm here, there and everywhere. Maybe it's just the chaos of life, the busyness of life. Maybe it's just you sitting on the lounge that at the moment nothing much is going on. What, how would you picture this one picture of how you're going right now in this week? Now here's an interesting question to add into that. If this is how you're going, where does God fit into this picture? Pictures like these. Is God even there? Is God even in the picture of your week this week? Is he in the background? Is he a part of the scenery? Maybe you've spent a bit of time with God this week and he's more, uh, you can see him clearly in your picture. Is he up front? Is he with you doing a selfie? Are you taking a selfie with God? Because that's how much time and how much importance you've had this week with him. Or is, is your picture all about God and maybe you're in the background? I suspect if you're like me, it's getting less and less like that. Because it's actually hard Hard to recognise God, hard to put him in our life. We just get so busy, so consumed with ourselves that he gets pushed away. But we know kind of, I want to know this God and I want to have him part of my life. So when people take a snapshot of my life, they can see God. They can see him clearly and know what he's like. This is a challenge for us, a challenge to what does this God even look like? Is this God even knowable that I can know him to, to have him as part of my life so people can see that? What does that even mean? So John the Baptist comes along. He's a man that comes along and says his whole mission in his life is to tell people, you can know God. You can know him personally. You can have him as a part of your life. In fact, he's saying, you need to know this God. You need to have a relationship with this God. You need to have him as part of your life. It's not okay to have him hiding in the background. It's not okay to have him standing behind you. John the Baptist says, when you know this God, you'll actually want to have him up the front of your life and you'll actually be happy to stand behind. That's how big this God is. So how does John know this? And what's his message? How can we know what John is saying? Well, let's spend a few moments thinking about the man, the man who knows all this stuff, because he does. He says, uh, goes on in verse 6. This is a bit we saw last week, like this in last week's passage, and we held off till this week till we really meet John. But here we meet John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, the light that we saw in the opening verses, that is God coming to shine light on us, on light himself to make, uh, make things clearer so we can know God. 
He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came only as a witness to the light. Now we need to be just be clear, it's a little bit confusing. We have this gospel written by John. It's the disciple John who's writing this gospel, writing this letter. Here, John, we're talking about John and we nickname him John the Baptist. Baptist, not his last name, just he's the baptizing one. So we get John the Baptist. It's interesting, up to in all the Old Testament, there's no nobody's named John. Hit the New Testament, there's John's everywhere. John's every second person. So there's lots of Johns we need to work out. There's two John, John the writer and John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is in an interesting time in humanity because in our Bibles, when we open it up and we start reading the Gospels, we find it, we've got the Old Testament on one side, we hit one page in our Bibles that says, now we're in the New Testament, and now we hit the Gospels. So we think anything over that page is all New Testament stuff. But it's actually, this is before, we're meeting John before we actually meet Jesus, So this is before the New Testament really kicks off. So John's this guy that's kind of half in the Old Testament, but he's bringing in this new era, this new era into the New Testament. This is what it's going to be like. I'm not sure whether you can associate with the time that John is living. I can actually associate with John. Uh, And I think most of you guys, not all of you guys, can associate with John. Because if I asked you, did you realise when you were born, would you say this century or last century? That's a shock for me. I was born last century. How old does that make you feel? That we're going into this new era, into a new century. I've actually got one of my favourite CDs. is a CD of, um, it's a double CD set of Aussie music. Music coming out of Australia. It's two CDs. I play one all the time. I never play the other one. Because the one I don't play is called Aussie Music This Century. The one I play all the time is Aussie Music Last Century. I realise, man, this is... I'm in two eras here, I'm old. What is going on? But this is John the Baptist. He's, he's, an, he's really an Old Testament guy. But he's bringing, helping us see what's going on. Why is the New Testament coming? What is it about this New Testament that we see? So he's in this transition time. And he's helping people to work through that. He's also sent from God. And he's sent from God for one purpose. That he is a witness and testifies uh, to this this. Um, to this light, this new era. He's the one that's sharing the testimony. It's, but the thing about his testimony, the thing about his witness, if you witness, say, a car accident, you witness it, right? I saw the car accident, and the police come to you and say, look, tell us what you saw. Give us your testimony. What happened? You're talking about a past event. This is what I saw. This is what I believe what happened. Because I saw it happened in the past. What John is witnessing, what John is testifying about, hasn't happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future. So he has this unique position. He's a witness and he's a testifying to something that's not happened, but it's about to happen. This new era that's coming. So he's a very unique man. He's in the Old Testament. He's saying, have a look, because this thing's coming uh, in the New Testament, and it's going to change the world. We're going to call it the New Testament. In fact, it's going to be not only just a new century or a new millennial, it's, it's actually going to set our calendars by this event that he's talking about, this coming of the light, the coming of the Christ. So what does John know exactly? What does he know? So we know a little bit about him. Now, verse 18 is a little bit like, if you ask somebody, why do you believe? 
put in one sentence, narrow it down. We're going to try this exercise over the coming uh, month or two. Why do you believe? This, I think, would be John's answer in verse 18, where he spells out, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who, he himself, uh, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So this thing about, this is what I believe, about why I, I can believe. It's hard to know God. Who has seen God? He's sort of distant. He's there, but who has seen him in the face? Who has spoken to him? Who's drawn near to him? John says there's only one, and that's God's Son, who he himself is God. He's God the Father, God the Son. They are together. Uh, we're going to meet the Spirit later on. The whole three of them, they're God. They're together. They're one God, but three persons. We talked about that last week. But God the Son knows him intimately. He's in very close relationship. But through the Son, we will get to meet the Son. And through the Son, we will get to know the Father. He says, this is exciting news. This is what I'm witness to. You can know God. You can know God through his Son. And we're going to meet his Son. And that's why he's testifying. That's why he's witnessing. That's why he wants everyone to believe. Did you pick that up before? He testifies so that all might believe like never before, you can know God because his son is coming into the world, who is God. So get yourself ready. Get yourself ready to meet the son, who is God, but he's going to introduce you to the father. He's going to make, make you uh, have access to the father. How does John know all this? Because John's this interesting character. He's turned up out of nowhere. He's making all these claims. How does he know? Now, a bit of the backstory to what's going on here. John is out, he's preaching, he's teaching out in the desert by the Jordan River. And out there he's uh, drawing all the crowds, which is in itself unique. He's near Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the heart of uh, the Jewish tradition, so they've got the temple there. If you want to draw near to God, you go to the temple in Jerusalem. But John's got this message, get yourself ready for God. He's not standing at the temple. He's not even inside the Jewish walls. He's out in the desert and he's by the Jordan River saying, get yourself ready. And the crowds are coming to him, lining up. Thousands, they estimate, are coming to him to hear this message. Now, the Jews, if you picked it up, the Jewish heavies, like, you know, it's almost like the Vatican hearing some bad rumours going on. They send out their Vatican police down. That's what's going on here. They send down the heavies to find out what is going on. Who is this guy who's making all these claims? They ask the question, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He goes, no, no, no. It's interesting that they ask, they think he might be one of these characters. We're going to pick that up next week, why they would be asking that. But he's going, no, no, I'm none of those guys. In fact, let me tell you who I am. And he reads out, or tells them this. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. See, I'm not a random guy. Some random guy, and if you know his description, he's got long hair, he's dressed in a coat made of camel hair. If you go around to his place for dinner, you're going to eat crickets dipped in honey. You know, he, he's, he's a strange character. But why is he getting all the crowds? He's saying, this is me. I'm not some random guy who's just turned up. I'm actually, he says, I'm the voice. I'm the one. I'm the one everybody should be listening to. That's the best dad joke you're going to hear today, right? I'm the voice. And his audience is the desert. And he's going to see how many chairs he can turn around to believe his message. 
That's what's going on here. But he said, I'm no random guy. In fact, what he's quoting here in this verse is from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah says, you know, before the, the one comes, before God comes, he's going to send the voice along. He's going to send the one crying out in the wilderness. So John's saying, I'm here, I'm in the desert. I'm this guy. I didn't just rock up. Isaiah was talking about me 600 years before Isaiah wrote this stuff. Wait, watch. Watch for this guy, the voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path for the Lord, he says. So his message then is to prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming. It's interesting, in fact, uh, in the New Testament, it's in Greek, and it says, you know, prepare your way for the Lord. And the Lord is kind of a term, it can be a courteous term. I know we use Lord just to refer to Jesus, but Lord uh, in the, the first century culture could be like Mr. or Sir or to your boss, showing respect. You might call them, they're my Lord. But when Isaiah writes it in the Old Testament, he says, uh, make the straight the way, this is in Hebrew, for not just Lord, but he says, for Yahweh, for God. Because God is coming. Make straight the way for God. That's the way John sees it. God is coming. And you need to prepare yourself, he's saying. Now, he, he realises that he's, he's drawn a lot of attention to himself. Lots of crowds have come to see him. But his role is to point to the one to come. God is coming is his message. So he, he's like the warm-up guy. He's like getting people ready. So when God does arrive, people aren't prepared. They know what to expect. Isaiah's been tipped, tipping them off. Look for the warm-up guy. He says, I'm the warm-up guy. But he says, as, as the warm-up guy, I want people's attention on God himself when he comes. So he tells stories like this about how uh, when he comes... Uh, we don't know who he is exactly at this point in time, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Even by telling this story, uh, in the first century, when they used to walk around, they used to have sandals, open sandals, they used to walk the roads to get to anywhere, and on the roads there's been um, all sorts of animals, there's, yes, there's poo, there's mud, there's all sorts of bits and pieces along there. When you get home, uh, if you're a poor person, you might do your own shoes, but if you're anybody of any status, you've got a slave. If you've got a slave, you never touch your sandals, you never touch your feet, that's their job. If you had a visitor come to your house and you go, oh, welcome, oh, you know, so fortunate. If you went to do their, undo their sandals, it's making you lower yourself to the position of a slave. It's a disgrace on yourself to lower yourself to the position of a slave. Don't do that. But John said, you know, if the, one, if, if the sun turned up now, if God turned up now and, you know, I... I'm the slave to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Don't talk about don't lower yourself to be a slave. Don't lo- he says, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. That's how great the one who is coming is. I'm even not good enough. I'm going to disappear in the background. I'm going to make him bigger and me smaller. Now, we can't just pass over this, this bit of detail because it's actually a really hard teaching. What John is saying is God is a big deal for you wanting to be small. It's like the photo. If you want to make, uh, have God in your photo, how's your week going? 
I want God in my photo. No, he's saying, you don't deserve to be in the photo. You want to make it all about God. Just hide behind him in the photo. You want people to see him. This is John's message. Now, there's actually a group of people around called the Mandeans. They uh, live in the Middle East. They're devoted solely to the teachings of John the Baptist. Happened from after John the Baptist, people started getting interested in his teachings and what he was saying. There's still estimated around 60,000 Mandeans today. Now, you can imagine if you're devoting yourself to John the Baptist, uh, what do you do every Sunday when you come together as a church? You get baptised. And the next Sunday, you get baptised again. Every Sunday, you're going to get baptised for the rest of your life because that's what John the Baptist did. He just baptised. Uh, they get that bit of the message that they need to listen to John, but they don't see it. John actually wants to disappear. He doesn't care if his name's even written in the book. He just wants to disappear as long as people see the one that's coming. These guys have gone, no, 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 we're hooked on John the Baptist. He's the one that's going to bring us to God, and they don't see it. Now we can go, those guys are a bit crazy. Even today, they're out there reliving this John the Baptist moment. How could they miss it? But yet we miss it too. John the Baptist is saying, it's not about me, I want to get smaller. It's about Jesus, or the one to come, and he, he needs to be bigger. And we go, yeah, yeah, okay, we're happy to leave John the Baptist. Uh, we're not going to worship him. But we actually forget about the making God bigger bit. That we struggle with that too. That we need to make ourselves smaller in order that he gets bigger. It's an idea that's very foreign to us today. You look at the politicians. Get into politics. What do you want to do? I want to be the top dog. I want to be prime minister. And I'll roll anybody who's going to stop me. I want to be the big guy. In our marriage, the Bible calls us to, uh, to build the other one up, to be self-sacrificial, to, to help our spouse. But yet we struggle to do that in our homes. It goes against the grain for us now to say, well, we need to get smaller to get God bigger but you get what John's saying? When you understand who God is, you want to make him bigger. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be his slave because he understands who God is. This is a challenge for us. We need to understand God to, to, to in order to make him bigger. Well then, if we're going to do that, how do we get ready for this God to understand him? How to get ready? See, John, uh, to appreciate, we need to make sure we put ourselves in the story before we get to the cross. So sitting here now, we go, oh, I know where this story's going, it's going to go to the cross. You're right, but we need to appreciate what John is saying. This is pre-cross, pre, we haven't met Jesus himself yet. So what John is doing, he's out in the desert and he's preparing people for God's arrival and he's baptising. So verse 28, uh, it's just a little note that you can easily read over. This all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptising. All this teaching and discussion was going on. A whole lot of stuff going on in this verse that's sort of just sneakily put in there. First of all, John was baptising. You know, he's not actually the first person to baptise. Just before, in that window between... Um, so Malachi, and there's a 300 years of uh, God saying nothing, and then we hit the New Testament. Some of the Jews um, come up with this idea of the Gentiles. So Jews are the people of God, traditional people of God, follow Abraham, uh, his line. If you're not a Jew, you're labelled a Gentile. You're outsiders. You're not one of us. But if a Gentile wanted to convert 
to be a Jew, they would baptise them to be a Jew. No Jews got baptised. That'd be like if you're an Australian citizen taking uh, the Australian citizenship thing. It's like you're already Australian citizen. Why would you do that? Jews never needed to get baptised, but Gentiles, if they wanted to, had to get baptised. So that was starting to happen when John came on the scene. So, but he's baptising. Uh, but what he's doing is all new about this. So he's baptising at the Jordan, the other side of the Jordan, speaking from the Jerusalem side. This takes us back to the Jordan River is very significant in the life of the Jews. Going back way when they were um, just being made of people, they left Egypt and they didn't have a land. And God said, I'm going to take you to the promised land. The promised land is the other side of the Jordan. So they had to cross the Jordan River to enter the promised land. This is a big significant time in the life of Israel. It was for them to really become a people. Had built up numbers, now they were going to be in the land, their land that God was going to give them. But what John is doing, John the Baptist is doing, is just like for Israel years ago, going into the promised land was a, a significant thing in the life for them. John's saying this is a spiritual journey, the same sort of journey. It's like entering the promised land spiritually. You're going through the Jordan and now you're going to be God's people, being baptised on the other side of the Jordan this is going in. It's, it's a new thing. That's amped up 50, 100 times because who's coming down to see John and getting baptised? But Gentiles, they want to be a part of this. And Jews. Jews for the first time are being baptised because they can see there's something going on here I want to be a part of. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not at the temple. It's down. It's this spiritual entering the promised land for them all. That's going to upset the Jews a lot that John's doing that. But the third thing he's doing is he's got a baptism of repentance. Repentance simply means to turn, to turn around. But what are you turning from? He's pointing the finger squarely at people's sinfulness. It's like you, don't, you can't come before God if you're living a life of sin, living a life that doesn't please God or living a life that just offends him. You know, he's not even in your photo. That's going to be offensive to him. And we label that a sin. So we've got this baggage. We do all this stuff that offends God. We've got this sin. So John's saying, you need to repent. You need to turn. So as they are getting baptised, they repent. They know they've done this stuff, but they're going to they turn. They're, they're living for, their, for themselves, for their sinful ways. They're going to turn, start living for God turn from their ways and baptism's a part of that process this baptism of repentance of turning now it's interesting though if you were a Jew this is how radically new idea this is for them at that day if you were a Jew and you wanted to get ready for God or go and meet God what do you do you go to the temple or you go to Jerusalem because that's where God's people are you go to the temple because that's where God's presence is that's where God meets with his people you're drawing closer, physically closer and nearer. You take a lamb with you. You take, um, you're on the journey, you've got your little lamb with you because you're going to have to make a sacrifice at one point. So you go into the temple courtyard, you find where the priest is. Uh, the priest is important. You can't just make a sacrifice at home. The priest is important because the priests were like a mediator between you and God. 
the priests had a special role of basically bringing you before God. And the way they can only bring you before God into his presence is by making a sacrifice for your sin. So what you would do is uh, come to the priest with your animal, but the lamb is a suggested one. Uh, had to be a perfect, it couldn't be the old ratty lamb that's probably not going to live anyway. Had to be the perfect lamb, like this one. Cute, he's clean, he's healthy. You know, you just want to cuddle him. But you got the lamb and you bring him up and you present him to the priest and the priest puts him on the altar. This is my altar. And what you would do is you would put your hands on the lamb and you would confess your sin, because you're here to deal with your sin, right? To get rid of your sin so you can meet with God. You'd put your hands on your lamb. And this is done usually by um, the male, the head of the house in, in that culture, where they uh, took responsibility of the sins of the whole family. So only he turned up or needed to turn up, put his hands on the lamb, and he would confess his sins over the lamb. You know, sorry God, we haven't been treating you right. Sorry we've done all this stuff thinking of ourselves. We haven't been generous with our money or time. We've been selfish. We've done this. Sorry, God. So he's verbally confessing, acknowledging his sin and confessing his sin over the lamb. And at that point when he's done, the priest cuts the lamb's throat. Just cuts it. That cute, cuddly lamb gets his throat cut and blood pours down. Because the penalty of your sin is death. And this is very graphic. God wants people to realise you can't just play the game. You can't stuff around. And by a very graphic thing of that lamb that you carried in and cuddled is now lying in a pool of blood and gets dragged off and you won't see him again. You walk home empty-handed. On the flip side, you've recognised your sin You've recognised that my sin has caused death and the lamb has taken that death for me. Symbolically, it's dealt with my sin so I can now be right with God. Painful, but it's making a point. It's making the point that we can't take our sin lightly. So sin needs to be dealt with. Now, the reason I mention that, that's, that's the way the, the traditional religious system worked. It's interesting, when John is out preaching, baptising people, telling people to turn from their sin, he never actually says, your sins are forgiven. Being baptised, you're washed clean in a, in, a, in a way that actually deals with your sin. He just says, sin no more. Turn from your sin. Get ready for the one who is to come. Now, is John in his new teaching in these new ways, is he saying that the sacrificial system is all wrong, they shouldn't be doing it, don't do it anymore? He's not actually even saying that. He's just saying turn from your sin. So it leaves us the question then, how can we meet God if we've got this thing that Leviticus has told these people to do, you need to sacrifice, and John's not saying it's wrong, but he's not telling people to go to the temple to do it that way. How can then we meet God? How can we meet God under those circumstances? Is just being aware of our sin enough? Or saying we repent, is that good enough? Well, John goes on. And this is the story unfolds. We're getting closer to finding out who is the one that he's talking about, this God come to us. And he talks about how he didn't know who it was. He didn't know who it was going to be. But God had told him, you will know when you're baptizing down at the Jordan, you'll see somebody being baptized and you'll see the Holy Spirit come down. Yes, so we've got the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all in one place at one time. When the Spirit comes down, 
and like a dove on this person. And notice the words, it remains on this person. You will know that he is the one. It's interesting that it remains on the person because in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit doing a few things. Uh, last year, we saw... Um, Saul, King Saul, the Holy Spirit come on him, then uh, the Holy Spirit come on King David. But the Holy Spirit come and goes in the Old Testament. But here, the Holy Spirit's going to remain. It's not going to come and go. It's on this one, my chosen one. So John says, I was baptising down the river and I see the Holy Spirit come down like a dove and it remained on this one. And he says, I know, this is him. This is the one I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. We finally see it. We finally meet the one. And when we get introduced to him, John's telling, about, telling us about him still, but when we finally see him in the story, you know, we're here, that, that we're talking, and Jesus finally walks up to us, coming the other way. What does John say? What's his big announcement to the people? Here is your God. Here is the Son of God, Yahweh. Or even... See, John is Jesus' cousin. He could just even say, here is my cousin Jesus, as introduced him to him. But now he knows that his cousin Jesus is the son of God. Instead of saying that, he goes, here is, here is the lamb. He says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A bizarre kind of introduction to everybody. We're looking for the one, the son of God, but here is the lamb. When we think lamb, we think the sacrifice, what we heard just before. It's God's sacrifice. The lamb of God is God providing the sacrifice to deal with the sin of the world. We know that sin's the problem and it's a sin for those uh, who are repenting or the Jews, but the sin of the world, it's a big thing to say. But John's saying, I'm testifying. This is the son of God and you need to repent you need to repent, not in a way that you need to go to the temple and deal with your sin by taking your lamb to the temple. You're not on this journey with this cuddly lamb that you go and sacrifice, but God is providing the sacrifice. We're saying God is the one who's going to deal with your sin. You don't need the temple anymore because Jesus comes. Remember who Jesus is? He's the son of God. He's the one who knows the father intimately He's like the mediator. He's the priest. So Jesus has come to the priest to bring you to God. You don't need a priest. Jesus is the priest. So you come to the priest. Where's my sacrifice? Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the lamb. He is the one. Jesus will die the death that we deserve so that we can have life and meet God. You can know God because we meet Jesus. And Jesus makes it possible because he's the lamb. Now, John won't let it go. John says later on, uh, we stopped a verse sh short of that, but in verse 35, uh, John was with two of his disciples and Jesus comes walking by again. And Jesus says, uh, John says, look, the Lamb of God. It's not a passing comment. He's nicknamed him the Lamb of God. Now, I'm sure the disciples are a bit uncomfortable with that because they're trying to work out what it really means. But you can't go around calling somebody, nicknaming him the Lamb of God, like he's going to be the sacrifice, like saying... You're the dead man walking. Nobody wants a nickname like that. But John's saying, but that's what he is. He's literally a dead man walking. This is why he came. This is Jesus' mission in life, to be the sacrifice, to bring us to God. It's true. So how can John 
be a witness and testify to something he hasn't seen yet, it hasn't happened yet, but it's a future event. And at this point in time, we kind of go, John's making these, at best, claims, maybe a bit crazy claims, but until we see it happen, it's hard to believe. That's when we jump forward about three years and we see that lamb being sacrificed, that Jesus is the one who goes to the cross. See, people at that time, it's almost set up like a sacrificial system, but showing us how rebellious our world is that Jesus is dying for. That when Jesus was led to the cross to be crucified, they weren't from repentant people. They weren't sorry. They were proud. It was mostly the Jewish leaders who themselves wanted to be big. They wanted to be the ones in the front of the photo. They wanted to be the ones' attention. They wanted Jesus out of the photo, so they thought by killing him that would get rid of him. Their pride made them think that their sin was not a problem. They weren't repentant at all, but yet they were making the sacrifice. These people led him outside of Jerusalem. He said, he's not one of us. He's not making a sacrifice for us. Let's take him outside the city walls. Let's put him on the hill. Kill him with all the other prisoners. Those not worthy. So outside the city walls, he was taken out and he was nailed to a cross, which is also symbolic because he's not at the temple just dying for the Jews. He's actually outside Jerusalem dying for the world, for the sins of the world, Jews and Gentiles. No one comes up to Jesus on the cross confessing their sin. In fact, what did they do? We're told people spat at him, mocked and cursed him. This is the Lamb of God dying for the world and the world spitting on him. He gets a spear in his side to make sure he was dead and then he was taken and buried in a tomb. Vanished. It's like the Lamb. But three days later, he rises again. He doesn't stay dead. He shows that he truly is God, that, that what John the Baptist was saying is true, and he will really rise again. So we do see the lamb again. The lamb comes to show that his death was successful. Isaiah explains what he's doing the best. Remember Isaiah, 600 years before, but he knew what was going to happen. He says in Isaiah 53, 5, talking about Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. That word transgressions and iniquities means our sin, our rebellion. That he took the punishment that was uh, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He took the punishment. And by his wounds, we are healed. He is the lamb that makes the sacrifice. He is the one that takes the death for every wrong thing we've done. He even takes the takes the penalty for the sins we have done and the sins we haven't yet done. His sacrifice was so complete. But rising from the dead, he showed that he truly is God. Now when we hear this story, we've got to realise this is not just information, another story about God. You know, this is, historically, we can back this up. It's not just one of those stories. But it's a story that shows, meet this God. You need to meet this God. This God is the one who reaches out to the lost, no matter where they are. So he reaches out to you. 
He comes and seeks you out, not demanding you need to jump this bar, get this high, be this religious, but actually I'm going to make a sacrifice for you. I'm going to be the one that's allowing you to come in and invites you in. If you knew somebody who sacrificed themselves so much to make you bigger, make you feel better, to restore you to life, what does that say about their love for you, affection for you, the relationship they want with you? We point each other to this all the time in our marriages. We want to be with someone like this. God does this for us. It's not just words on a page, but expression of God's love. You know, why do you uh, tell me how much you love me or show me how much you love me? God shows us how much. This is a God I want to know. This is a God I want to have a relationship. This is a God that I want to put on the front of my page. That I want to put up that people see him for his great love. We're asking the question, uh, why do you believe or why I believe? And we just, if you had to narrow that down, what's one or two statements, why I believe... What would you say? See, I think this, is, this has drawn me in, the love of God, that he would accept somebody like me. Not because I've jumped the bar, not because I've become religious, not because I've done any of that, but even as a sinner, that he would lay down his life for me. That's the God I want to follow. That's the God I want to give my life to. See, is God someone you want in your background? Are you happy having him just on the side? Or is he such a loving God, you're going to put him up front? Because that's the God he is and deserves to be. Let me pray. Dear Father, thank you for this expression of amazing love. That you would send your son, Jesus. And that Jesus could have easily shied away. He could have turned his back when he saw the cross. He could have rescued himself. He could have called angels to help him. But no, instead he went to the cross for you and me. Lord, thank you that uh, through his sacrifice that we can know you, know your love, and that we can experience it. But Lord, we confess to you that often we're actually more comfortable keeping you on the side. We're more comfortable doing life our own way rather than clinging to you. So Lord, help us to turn from that. Help us to repent. Lord, thanks for washing our hearts clean that when we trust in Jesus and his death, his blood shed, his death died that we can have this friendship with you, with a clean record. Our sin is no longer a barrier between us. Lord, help us to live lives that rejoice in that fact, that we have true life, that we know the creator of the universe, and we find that love each and every day when we turn to you. Help us on that journey, Lord. Send us your spirit, Lord, so that we can see you clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.